Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of 101 George Street. My name is John Malloy and this is the podcast from Mowbray, Scotland's National Centre for Children's Literature and Storytelling. My guest this week is none other than Barbara Henderson. Barbara is an author of Scottish historical and eco-fiction for children. Her novels, all published by Cranachan Publishing, includes Fearful Luck, Punch and Wilderness Wars and all are widely used in Scottish schools. Her latest book, The Siege of Calabrock, was published in August of last year and is a medieval adventure for 8 to 13 year olds, set during the real life siege of Dumfries and Galloway's very own Calabrock Castle in July 1300. Let's get stuck in. Barbara, what's your favourite children's story and why? So I've got two. First of all, I as a child, I absolutely loved Walter Farley's uh, hot racing stories, The Black Stallion, and that whole series. Uh, it absolutely fired me up as a reader. And probably that was when I thought the coolest thing you could ever do with your life is to write stories for young people. So uh, that was the starting point. And then uh, there, are, there are probably two that really ignited my love for historical fiction. And they're more recent. One was called The Executioner's Daughter by Dane Hartstaff. And uh, I loved that book. And I also adored Black Powder by Ali Sherrick, um, mm. which is about the gunpowder plot and published by Chicken House. Uh, those are brilliant books that just bring the past to life in ways that I never thought possible. And uh, it made me want to attempt uh, to write some historical fiction. And uh, that's what I've ended up doing with most of my time. Well, on that, why do you think history and, and to a certain extent ecology plays such an important role in your writings? So they're separate strands for me, um, you know, and I, I wouldn't like to think that I'm limited to those. Uh, in fact, my first um, sort of three, four works were uh, fantasy and uh, contemporary fiction. So I wouldn't like to uh, think of myself as only that. But the mm. fact is that those are probably the two things I care about the most. Um, eco fiction and anything to do with, uh, you know, green issues and sustainability and the way that we look after our planet. That is close to my heart. I was a volunteer for the RSPB's youth wing, the uh, Wildlife Explorers, for some time. I um, made it my mission, really, to try and connect young people with nature, uh, and I still do that. In fact, this morning, before I came on here, I spent probably about 45 minutes bird watching, trying to see what I could catch in our garden, and uh, I, I love that kind of thing. So for me, that is crucial, and it's something that maybe I can bring that maybe not everybody cares about in quite the same way although there are some fantastic eco-writers for children out there. Mm. Uh, the other thing uh, is that I find history just probably the most exciting country of all to visit. I love the idea that, uh, you know, here is a place that we recognise, but it's not our place. It's not what we know. You know, uh, this is what went before. Um, you know, in the, the same way that maybe if you're a metal detectorist, you unearth an, an old coin and you go, my goodness, people you know, bought and sold things here, but this is not my coin, this is not my life, this is not, uh, but it's the same hills, it's the same rivers, it's the same sea, um, and that just fascinates me, the fact that, you know, there are so many layers of culture and of memory and of stories uh, that we can tap into, and I, I 
love books that bring that type of thing to life. You can probably tell by the bookshelves behind me and I've got <laughs> shed loads more over there. Uh, I love reading historical fiction. For many years, I didn't think I would be the one to write it because I am not by nature a very meticulous person. I'm not somebody who I thought could um, get absorbed in research and get it right. I was worried uh, that I'm too much of a big brushstrokes, big picture kind of person, um, and that I wouldn't have the patience to work on historical stories. But the truth is that if it's a historical story that interests me enough, uh, then lo and behold, I'm able to do it, I think. And, uh, you know, I certainly give it the absolute best that I've got to try and get it right. But yeah, I find the past utterly fascinating and uh, culture, memory, stories, all these are issues that, uh, you know, I, even as a child, I found completely mesmerizing. Um, and the fact that history is so uh, woolly and unpredictable and um, that actually we can't know for certain in so many ways, you know, mm. it's always through the eye of the beholder, which just gives you thousands, um, in fact, infinite story possibilities when you're writing about history. So I like that. The best historical stories, I think, are um, when you've got a few things that you know happened, but actually the rest of it is uncertain. So it gives you a lot of scope to um, invent and to paint the picture around it, like a watching light. You know, there are certain pegs that just have to be in place. And other than that, it can just flutter whichever way um, the wind takes it. And that's the way I like my historical stories. That's absolutely fascinating. And for the listeners at home, I can confirm that Barbara has uh, bookshelves filled with books in the background. But it's interesting that you describe history and the past as a country, a place to visit. And in many ways, it is it's the best country, in fact, because it's a place that you can visit in your mind. And as you say, it's rooted in fact. And to explore that, you can explore the factual events that we know took place. But there's so much grey area, there's so much unknown. A lot of the human element, for example, is completely unknown. Mm -hmm. That it's a country ripe for exploration, not just as, 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 as someone who uses their imagination or an actor or a reader, but also an author. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree with that. And I do think there's another responsibility with that. Um, I read much historical fiction in my uh, childhood and in my teens, but um, actually I find that now when I reread those books that I loved, sometimes there is a little unease there because, um, you know, maybe they fall just too lazily into gender stereotyping, for example. And I love the fact that, um, you know, actually when you really read your history, there were plenty of feisty girls around, for example, uh, who could solve their own problems and who wouldn't wait for, for the boys to do it for them. And, uh, you know, I think just redressing that balance slightly. And I think also uh, something has changed in children's literature and arguably, I think, um, you know, not for the worse. There is just more of an expectation to include, um, you know, pace to have, be mindful of holding your reader's attention. And I think that sometimes, um, you know, we all as writers can be a little bit self-indulgent going, oh, I love this, these 15 paragraphs of description. It's just beautiful, you know, <laughs> uh, while children in corners fall asleep. And I think we need to um, just rise to the challenge and hold uh, children's, young people's and adults' attention with our work. And uh, the idea that, you know, history can be told in uh, what is now an accessible way, a, a pacey way, and something that doesn't alienate, um, you know, groups of society, you know, that, that empower girls and, and show them 
that uh, you know history can be changed by by boys and by girls. Uh, I love that. Absolutely, and I think fantasy in the past, not not too distant past actually, uh, has been the writers have been guilty of indulging themselves, particularly with regards to description. And I can name a few writers. I won't. That we're talking paragraphs upon paragraphs upon paragraphs of descriptions of clothing or things, which I, I you would say are not that necessarily in terms of the story and in terms of the characterization involved in the, in the story. So it's interesting that you notice that there is a, a trend to move away towards improving the pace and keeping things interesting and engaging. Why do you think that is the case? I think there is a pragmatic uh, interpretation that we're all at sort of instant generation. We click through our phones, we have access to all the information we want at the, you know, sort of little scroll of the screen. So, um, you know, I think that's part of it. I think, uh, you know, in general, holding people's attention, we're not mm. training ourselves to memorize. We're not, you know, we don't have to, to the same extent because uh, we, we can carry all this information with us. So I think as readers, we're probably, you know, less capable um, of, of remembering, of retaining, of, um, of you know, sort of disciplining ourselves to, to pay attention to something 100% for hours, the way that maybe our parents or grandparents were able to do, had no choice but to do. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, there, there are many advantages that come with the digital um, revolution, if you like. And uh, I think that our books need to uh, move with it rather than fight it. So I like description in books and I, I don't mind. I really enjoy a, an atmospheric book that really creates a world powerfully. But I think that as writers and especially writers for young children, in order to keep them reading, I think we have a responsibility to give them something that hooks them as soon as possible. And that's something that maintains that momentum. I think uh, it's just something that I would want to strive to do. Absolutely. I think it's important for writers uh, and any creative individual to adapt to the audience. If the audience is changing, as audiences do, um, it's important to, yeah, it's important to keep up with that, with that change. And, and as you say, not try to fight it because invariably you lose that battle. I noticed with your own books that there is a very strong focus on Scotland and Scottish history. Why is that important to you? I think it's actually really interesting because I'm an immigrant to Scotland. You probably know that by my accent. I came when I was a teenager mm. and uh, I've been in Scotland for um, 30 years now. And I really feel like this is my country. This is my place. And there was almost an element of defiance there that mm. I thought, uh, why shouldn't I be allowed to write about this if it interests me enough? I think the... Uh, Shift came really with Fur for Luck with my first book that was published, but it was actually my sixth book I had written. Mm. Um, so it took me a little while to get published, probably a common um, occurrence amongst writers in this country. Many people who want to be traditionally published have to wait some time for that to happen and have to hone their craft a little bit. And uh, I, I was no exception to that. So Fur for Luck was my first historical book. It was the first time I'd attempted anything that was touching on Scottish history. And uh, I, I was just fascinated by this story. I was on holiday on the north coast of Scotland and we uh, came across, stumbled across actually, this uh, clearance's village and there was a trail around it. And it was nothing more than stones lying in the countryside and it was a completely deserted part of the coast. So I was astonished when I saw some um, signage that uh, told us of a village that had existed there with its own school and uh, 15 to 20 families. And, you know, there was a proper community there. 
And I was amazed at that. Uh, one year there were 50 odd people living there and the next year there were none. And uh, that just blew my mind and I wanted to find out a little bit more about it. And as I was reading, it talked about the Durness riots in defiance um, of this decision of the landowner to, to act in this way and to evict the tenants. And I couldn't believe uh, that there had been riots in that area that had been covered all the way down to London and the Times newspaper. Mm. And uh, that riot, it turns out, was started by women who were left alone at home as all the men were away uh, fat cutting. And the messenger came to deliver this uh, legal document, the writ, which would force them to be evicted. And uh, as soon as you touch this document, it was legally binding. And somehow these women and children who were left behind forced the messenger, the sheriff officer, to burn his own writ and send him packing. And that was the beginning of the riots. And I thought, how amazing. First of all, I don't think that there was any recent book on the Highland Clearances. Secondly, mm. here was a perfect opportunity to throw in a girl into the centre of uh, what was happening at the very heart of the story. And the more I researched it, the more it became evident I wanted to write this story if nobody else had done it. And then um, I suppose one of my mottos in life um, is why not? Why ever not? It was a lecturer at university who said that to me um, when I declared that because I was born a German, I couldn't possibly teach English uh, after my degree. And he said, why not? Why ever not? Mm. And, uh, you know, it's, it just lodged itself into my brain. Uh, you know, yes, there will be some challenges that we walk away from, but we should always ask ourselves first, why not? Why ever not? I suppose there's a sense of responsibility too, as someone who's come, who's come from outside and, and moved into the country um, to look at the history of that country. And, and if you, certainly if you're going to explore it through art or through writing, you have that sense of responsibility that you want to you do it justice. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And maybe I felt that even more acutely uh, because I was an incomer. But, you know, I, I still feel that in the end, you know, anyone can tell a story if they're willing to put the work in. And I feel like I really tried to put, put the work in to get it right, uh, to include Gallic and Scots and to, uh, to make the writing as good as I could make it. And in the end, the test would be, would publishers pick it up? Um, would an agent want to look at it and uh, in the end I was lucky that Furfalock was picked up and that uh, you know people seem to like it a lot of schools around Scotland are studying it and uh, it offered, gave me the opportunity to um, create more historical fiction which is funny because I kind of became a, a historical Scottish historical fiction writer mm. uh, almost by accident I think. And I think the fact that you were able to look at, and let's face it, I mean, as with most countries in Europe, there's a lot of um, bloody actions and bloody events that happens in, in Scotland, particularly yeah. because of the unique history involving Scotland and England as well. But you were able to look at that particular um, event or those series of events in Scotland. Again, identify something that could resonate with a modern audience. The fact that this this riot was was caused um, by women, women were the were the agitators, were the, the active partners in this, and you were able to bring it to a modern audience. I think that's fascinating and fantastic. I think that in the end, you need to find something that still resonates today. And I think mm. one thing that kids are switched on like they have never been before is justice. I think kids really know an unjust action when it happens in front of their eyes, whether they have the guts to react to it there and then, um, you know, that depends on the situation. But 
kids nowadays, you know, give me a lot of hope. I think that there is a can-do attitude, there's an activism attitude, and there's an attitude of, of making things fair. And, uh, you know, the fact that these people were evicted at uh, almost no notice, mm. that resonates with kids nowadays. That's not fair. It's not fair that the writ was sent when the landowner knew that all the men uh, would be away who could make a fuss or who could defend the village. Um, that's not fair to take advantage of situations like that and to exploit them for your advantage if you're the rich and powerful one. Uh, so kids respond to that. And I think that's what to find. That's what to find is to, to find the angle that uh, readers, and that includes me, actually, you know, because I'm the very first reader I'm writing for, um, can get on board with or can get outraged by. You know, you need an emotional response of some sort. So if you look at The Siege of Calaverock, for example, my latest book, the very, very beginning of that is a secret mission where a girl who'd been forgiven forbidden uh, to walk the castle at night, is creeping out at night to feed a prisoner who's been left to rot in the tower. And um, so that kind of little sense of compassion uh, is just the starting point that enables the reader to hopefully get on board with Ada, my main character. We like her because she cares enough to do something that she could uh, get in trouble uh, about. And, and there is a sense of justice and, and compassion that, that we can identify with. And that propels the story forward because my villain does not have that. To stay on, on Scottish history as being a theme, uh, I noticed another theme in your books, a uh, reoccurring theme is, is Dumfries and Galloway as a region. You mentioned <laughs> you mentioned uh, before your latest book, The Seas of Claverock. For those people at home, Claverock Castle is actually a wonderful castle in Dumfries and Galloway. I've been to it myself a few times. It's, it's a really evocative place. Um, wonderful turrets, wonderful towers, and it was it was a site of, of many a siege and many many events in in Scottish history. I'd like to talk about your Burns novelette, but obviously because the podcast is, uh, is due to go out in January, not not too far away from Burns Night. Moving away from your novel, fearful look toward Blackwater, again set in Dumfries and Galloway, with Burns Night just round the corner, what inspired you to write it? Oh my goodness. So I had written a smuggling story. I've always loved smuggling stories. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson is one of my favourite writers of all time. And um, that kind of clandestine uh, seaside at night time, you know, forbidden dealings and doings, all of that really appeals to me in a story. And I had some years ago won a short story competition um, with a smuggling story. And mm -hmm. I'd always uh, remember that the judges said this reads like it could be the opening to something much longer. Longer. And it was from the point of view of an excise man, uh, but a young trainee excise man at the time, they would have been about 13, maybe 14 years old, um, sometimes younger if they were related. So I thought, you know, that would be a really good uh, story to look into. So I thought, oh, I wonder, uh, Robert Burns used to be an excise man. I knew that from my degree. I wonder if he was ever involved in anything uh, remotely exciting enough for a children's story. And uh, well, as I did a bit of digging, I found out that there was a huge smuggling ship, a schooner, um, which uh, was stranded in the Solway Firth, uh, that body of water that uh, surrounds uh, Dumfries and Galloway uh, to the south and, um, you know, borders with England. And uh, yeah, so I found out that Robert Burns was part of the, the workforce that was sent out to capture this boat with pistol and sword, uh, despite being fired at with um, muskets and also with um, carronades, small cannon. And, uh, you know, it's a very dangerous operation, 40 dragoons, um, sort of horse um, 
riding sogas were also sent along with that. And the ship uh, was stranded near Annan um, and Robert Burns and uh, some of his colleagues had to come down from Dumfries. And I thought, wow, here's a story that is based on real events. Not only that, we have a diary, a blow by blow account of the guy who was in charge of it. He was new in a job. And you know how you're super conscientious at that point. <laughs> and uh, you're just writing everything down. And that's exactly what he was like. So we know exactly who was there. We know exactly what happened uh, in every hour of this uh, sort of two-day confrontation in the February of 1791, I think. And uh, yeah, just incredible that uh, I could just throw a child into that and tell that story. And I think so many of us, we, you know, I'm a teacher, so I'm in school doing burns and doing burns again. And the next year I do burns again. And uh, so here was the possibility of actually uh, not just reciting the poetry, but to actually focus on a story. Um, you know, where, where he was conceivably a, a main character um, and I could throw a child alongside him uh, into the story. So it ended up being quite a short book. Um, so I know that you don't have any visuals, but uh, it's only uh, 83 pages long and uh, that's including a little explanation at the end of it. So it's actually something that's short enough for schools to read uh, once they return in January and before Burns Night on the 25th of January. And uh, so that was a very clever ploy from my publishers because I had it all sorted in my head. I was going to write a full length novel and they said, actually, if you can condense it down to just the crucial events, uh, then and that would be uh, absolutely perfect. So 1792 is the year that that took place. And I just love the fact that, you know, schools can now lift up a wee story and use it alongside whatever else they would normally be doing for Brands Night. And I adapted it into little play as well, which is um, downloadable and usable for schools. Um, so uh, all of that is on my website and on the publisher's website too. So uh, Tranakin Publishing. The great thing about Burns, and I say this as, as someone who was born in Liverpool in England and moved to Scotland myself, is, and particularly when you move to somewhere like Dumfries and Galloway, is all the stories that you don't hear about Burns that people tell you about, the folk stories, the little snippets of information that you, th you go, really, that happened? Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. And I think in general, uh, there is this sort of uh, folk understanding of, um, of Burns that's just sort of taken off. It borders on deification sometimes, I think. Um, but I, I loved flipping it because so many uh, smuggling stories are told mm. from the point of view of people who are caught up in smuggling in some way and I thought it would be so interesting to have a story from the point of view of an excise man, mm. uh, somebody who's doing, you know, who's enforcing the law, who's um, trying to bring smugglers to justice um, and to, to show those people are people too. They are flawed too. They are, um, you know, motivated by very similar sort of universal human motivations, just like all of us are. Um, I find that really interesting. And I don't think Robert Burns loved being an excise man, to be fair. I think he um, he took it because he had many children to support. Um, and, you know, it was a, a secure uh, job that one of his patrons had secured for him. Mm. Uh, I don't think he ever bought into it um, fully and there was a lot of tongue-in-cheek um you know quotations and you know the deals the wall with the excise man and um, you know all these kind of things where you know he's hedging his bets um yeah. legend has it that he actually bought the cannon from the ship that they um they boarded they were auctioned off and that he bought them and sent them to the french revolution because he was a bit of a sympathizer <laughs> you know what? i can having heard a few stories unofficial stories in the region about Benz, i can believe that 
Well, okay, so moving away from Blackwater to your latest um, book, The Siege of Calaverock. Now, again, Calaverock Castle is one of my favourite places to visit in Dumfries and Galloway. Uh, whenever it's sunny, I, I, go, I get in the car with my wife and I drive down there because it's so evocative, so atmospheric. And again, it was a site of many important events uh, for Scottish history and, and English history, actually. Why the siege? So, um this is another book that happened by accident. Um, you know, I talked before about for luck being something that I stumbled across on holiday. The same is true of the Siege of Calaverock. Uh, I was down in Dumfries and Galloway to research the Burns book. And uh, I was finishing off the writing. I was making sure that I was adding in, um, you know, bits and pieces that would make it believable, that I knew the lie of the land there. And uh, by the end of the wettest, muddiest, most disgusting holiday week ever, my family revolted slightly. And, uh, you know, we thought, well, we're going to have to get out. Uh, I had three teenagers at the time and it was it was really a case of we need to go somewhere, even though it's raining. So we went to Calaverock Castle because we thought, you know, it's a place of interest. It's nearby uh, where we're staying in this holiday cottage. And uh, let's go. And uh, we walked in and just as we walked in, there were these huge um, sort of rocks hewn into, uh, you know, ball shapes. And they were the missiles that had uh, landed inside the castle uh, during the siege of 1300. Now, first of all, I thought, what a round number, 1300. You know, that's easy to remember. And then uh, it turns out that that particular siege was incredibly well documented because a heraldic poem had been written about it by one of the uh, poets traveling with the king. So the English king crossed uh, the border from England into Scotland to, um, you know, quell the rebellion, really. Mm. Uh, there, there were mutterings. Uh, Wallace was on the run at that point. Um, you know, Bruce hadn't emerged yet, but, you know, there were definitely, um, you know, there was an uncertainty about which way it was going to go and who the Scottish nobles would side with and whether they would... Um, keep to their word because many of them had actually sworn, um, you know, faithfulness to the King of England uh, only a few short years before, less than a decade before. Um, but there was just, uh, there were rumours of war and uh, the English King decided to take no chances and to just go and stamp his authority on Scotland. So he travelled north, 3,000 soldiers with him, 300 of them knights, the absolute elite. Um, so Calabro Castle was one of the first ones in his way. And uh, it turns out that they didn't sort of just roll over and let him take it. Um, so they uh, they decided to lock up and, and uh, defend the castle. And, uh, you know, he felt that at the beginning of the campaign, he really needed to win that, you know, to try and um, have any credibility for the rest of his campaign. So it was a, a, a short siege, but the, the fact that um, really grabbed my attention and my imagination was the fact that there were 3,000 odd uh, elite soldiers outside the castle, and there were only about 60 inside the castle, because once more, many of the men were away, including the Lord of the castle himself. Um, so in my imagination, I decided that he might well have been away to um, discuss tactics with nearby noblemen, with his clan. Um, so he's, he's away and uh, the lady of the castle, according to the poet, uh, was in, in sole charge, really. There would have been a castle commander uh, who is my villain in the book. And uh, if I say so myself, I think he's probably the most terrifying creature I've ever come up with in my imagination. Um, yeah, he's, he's probably the most evil baddie. Um, and I'll never forget to look 
creative writing workshop I went to quite early on, uh, Barry Cunningham, who famously uh, published the Harry Potter uh, books, you know, he took a chance on uh, an unknown J.K. Rowling. Mm. And um, he said that the very first thing he looks for in his uh, submissions is, is the villain. If it doesn't have a credible, terrifying villain, he's not interested. Um, so I try and take those things to heart. <laughs> And I loved writing the book. The idea, again, that, um, you know, we could come up with an actual girl at the centre of the castle siege. All castles, uh, stories that I'd come across before that uh, were very centric on boys, on mm. knights, on jousting, uh, and that whole world. And, uh, you know, I touch on that in the book. Uh, her sidekick is a trainee knight um, called Godfrey, who's only eight. And, uh, you know, he's a little page, the very first step to becoming a knight. Mm. Um, but between them, they try and put things right and see justice done in Calaverock. And uh, I, I love writing that book. The Middle Ages are just the coolest period ever to write about, I think. Um, I can't think of anything more evocative and, um, you know, where the stakes could be any higher. Life and death is literally around the corner with every mm. twist of the, the plot. And uh, that's what appealed to me the most. Uh, just to touch on uh, a comment that you made in your, your previous answer about a good children's story needs a good villain. And you mentioned earlier about it's always important to know your audience and to adapt to your audience. How important is it for new writers or up-and-coming writers to be aware of the trends in children's literature and in particular about what publishers are looking for? Dear, I've I've made so many faux pas in that region that I just Mm. uh, think I'm probably not the best to advise anybody what to do. I still consider myself an up-and-coming writer, really. Um, I think that, um, you know, it's probably futile to chase after a trend to kind of go, oh my goodness, everything is about this right now, so let's jump on the bandwagon. Um, You know, I think there's a little danger at the moment with climate fiction, um, you know, where, you know, a lot of People are now writing about this very pertinent issue and I think it needs to be explored in literature but if you're just writing it because you think it's going to be taken on because it's trendy and that's what people are looking for then chances are uh, you're on a hiding to nothing I think you really need to love the story um, I think that uh, for me that's the most important thing of all if you yourself can't be excited about your story if you can't be in love with your story um, you know you're going to have to write it that probably takes about a year by the time I've researched and written a book it's almost a year um, you know you then have to present it to publishers and uh, get them to take it on board if you're lucky enough to be taken on I have amazing publishers but they don't take everything I write even now and uh, you know I think that's important to be honest about I have unpublished novels that I've wrote recently that are not going to see the, the the daylight because of that and uh, so if you're lucky enough to have that book taken on by a publisher then you're going to have to edit it and that's probably going to be another uh, year of backwards and forwards and discussing uh, how to make this the best book possible then you're going to have to take it to readers and promote it and you're going to be reading from that book if you're lucky for the rest of your writing career you know you really have to love it and uh, I think that's not going to be uh, easy if you're just following a trend if you go oh you know people seem to be looking for funny I better write something funny I've tried that actually and it turns out that's not my superpower mm. so um which is fine I go back to what I like doing which is the atmospheric stuff I really enjoy that and uh you know it turns out there's room for all of us in the on the bookshelves of young readers we just need to be faithful I think to what really excites us in a story
that's quite pertinent advice actually um for new writers is, is basically know what you write and write what you know yeah i, I don't know you'd argue that Scottish history wouldn't be what i you know i'd never danced to kaylee before i had no gaelic i had no scots you know mm. i i came to scotland uh with english very firmly as my second language and yet you know i've made that my own and i would argue that now it is my own world it's my country i can't imagine living anywhere anywhere else right now um but uh you know, I, I don't think we should be limited to what we know by default, but we can make it our business to know about things that we really care about. And I think that's the thing that I feel uh, most strongly about, that uh, we need to care. Would you ever cast your eye towards Germany for inspiration? Um, Would you ever set a novel in Germany? I can't at the moment think of a circumstance where I would do that. Um, you know, Germany has uh, had a, a lot of horrific history and uh, much of it has been written about incredibly well uh, by both Germans and non-Germans. I'm not sure that I am necessarily the person to do that because I'm not desperately excited about it. Mm. I felt that uh, when I turned my eye to Scottish history, that not many people certainly at that time were doing that. You know, it felt like there wasn't that much historical uh, fiction. I couldn't find, for example, uh, much in the way of historical fiction set in the Middle Ages and the Wars of Independence for children. Yes, there is work for adults, but there's nothing for children or it felt like there was almost nothing. Um, you know, the same with the Highland Clearances, very, less than a handful of books about the Highland Clearances uh, aimed at children. So I think if you can see a gap and you're actually interested in it yourself, then that's a good combo. Focusing a little bit more on, on you as an individual, um, I was delighted to find out that you, you are um, an English and drama teacher. And as a former English and drama teacher who taught in Germany myself, uh, the great thing about English and drama teachers is that you get the benefit of working with young people on different facets of their imagination. You can see and work with young people who are exploring writing in the world of literature, but you can also see them devise their own plays and create their own bits of magic in drama. How much do you think that working with young people in those two settings, English and drama, how has that influenced you or helped you? So I think that, um, you know, having an English degree and teaching English in secondary schools for most of my teaching life with, with drama, um, you know, I think it just gives you a huge backlog of stories that you're aware of. That in itself is really fertile ground. And I think every book you read goes into that compost from which the new stuff can grow. And um, so anything you read um, feeds into that and composts down. You might not remember everything about it, but actually occasionally when you're looking for a little bit of inspiration, something will just ring a bell and it'll just grow up and it's come out of all the books combined that I've ever read and ever studied with youngsters and seen youngsters respond to. Uh, I think one of the brilliant advantages of this is that you've seen youngsters react to stories so you kind of know what works and what doesn't, what grabs them and what doesn't. Um, that in itself is, is you know a real help. Uh, in latter years I've, I've taught drama uh, exclusively both in secondary and uh, more recently just in primary and uh, you know that's been wonderful because it really is free reign creativity as you know. Uh, it's, it's beautiful to be able to throw a stimulus in there and just see what amazing stuff comes out of the minds and imaginations of children. And uh, I often actually test some ideas on them. Uh, so I will, uh, I will kind of use my classes as um, guinea pigs and I might 
sort of go, you know, how about this as a stimulus? And that would maybe just be the germ of an idea. And uh, if it's something that captures them and they can respond, then, you know, I know that there's a bit of mileage in that idea. And when I wrote Blackwater, for example, before the book was even published, I had adapted the story into a play and I tried it with some of my classes and we performed it at an assembly in school. And then um, it was just lovely to see how they got on board with the story. And I kind of thought, I haven't got anything to worry about. This book will be okay. And, um, you know, I, I just think it, it's a constant uh, reference point as well, because you hear how children talk, you hear what excites them and what bores them. And uh, you have so many prototypes. I mean, actually, every character, every character I've ever created, I can kind of go, there's a little bit of that pupil in this character, or yeah. there's a wee bit of that teaching colleague in that character. Um, I think it's actually healthy for writers to have another job. Uh, I might be on my own with that. And yes, there is a little moment sometimes when you just go, gosh, I would love to just do only writing for every minute of my day. Um, now I'm very fortunate that I can split my life in, in two ways. It's roughly 50-50. And, um, you know, in terms of earning and in terms of time commitment. And uh, I love that. I think it's a good balance because you don't lose your grip on real children. And actually, there's a ready-made audience. If I have a new book out, I can um, sort of go to my, my boss at school and say, would you like an assembly on this new book? And they, they quite often say, yes, go on. Um, so, yeah. And you have, you have your finger on the pulse with what's happening with teachers as well, which, you know, if I'm being brutally honest, is probably one of my core audiences. Um, my books, just by the nature of what type of books they are, uh, are often suitable for school projects and so on. So if I can get teachers aware of what my work is, then uh, that's another helpful thing. So being part of teaching, um, you know, Facebook groups and, uh, you know, social media groups is all very helpful. So I think on every single level, it's an advantage. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Very fortunate position to be in. Um, now we're moving, we're moving towards the end of the session, um, but I thought we'd have an opportunity or I'll give you an opportunity to talk about your next projects or your next steps. Um, you mentioned very early on in the session that you've got a few books that you're working on all lined up. Um, and I'm quite interested to know a little bit more information about those books. Right. So I think most writers uh, are probably like me. I think it's so important to always have another thing on the go because uh, disappointment is never that far away. Um, you know, so I might have spent six months writing a book uh, last year. I don't know if that's going to be published or not. Um, so, you know, it's, it's wonderful to always have something else on the go. So the, the one that's uh, out next uh, from Flanagan uh, is The Chessman Thief, which is a late Viking Norse uh, story. And it's an origin uh, story for the Lewis Chessman, the very famous artifacts um, on which the Harry Potter Chessman in the second Harry Potter film were based. You know, they look exactly like those. So uh, I loved writing that because I love the islands. Uh, I love uh, anything to do with Vikings, anything to do with a bit of a sword fight, you know, just throw that in. That's great for me. Uh, I love those kind of stories. And uh, doing the research, you know, there's a lot of, we think that it's likely that this happened, but nobody knows for certain. So it just gives, gives you so much free reign. Um, I was lucky enough to have access to the um, editor of most of the sort of scholarly books on the Lewis Chessman and he uh, okayed the storyline. He felt it was a plausible storyline. So that 
was brilliant because it just gave me gave me the green light to to work on it and the cover has recently been revealed so it kind of shows the calendar stones on the isle of lewis with a figure running through them it's got the northern lights in the background and it's just an absolutely beautiful cover so i'm really excited that's out on the 29th of april and uh, I think most of my January will be uh, spent on making final edits to the manuscript in uh, collaboration with the publishers and to start working on teaching resources, which we tend to put out at the same time as the books, just in case uh, school teachers want to pick it up for a Viking project. Um, so that is the next thing that's in the pipeline. Uh, I've uh, spent the last six months writing a book uh, called Scottish by Inclination, uh, which uh, I'm in discussions with the publisher for, but I haven't had anything in writing yet. So we'll wait and see whether that uh, sees the day daylight. Uh, it's a it's a departure from all my children's writing, and I think probably a one-off departure, um, a non-fiction book about the contribution of EU citizens in Scotland, um, which I loved writing and was really close to my heart, obviously. And uh, yeah, so I'm now working on a Victorian book um, about a boy who is working on constructing the Forth Bridge, the iconic Victorian uh, bridge over the Firth of Forth in um, north of Edinburgh, south of Fife, connecting those two. Um, so we have a boy who's afraid of heights. Um, he's, he's terrified of, uh, of this job, but he has no choice but to take that on. And um, yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Very recently, I came across uh, a little snippet in research to say that there, there was a squirrel, squirrel on the bridge and it, it fell off and it had to be rescued. So I'm going to give him a squirrel. I'm so excited. <laughs> so um, yeah, brilliant fun to write. Can't wait to read the books. Um, you are very busy, aren't you? Always writing. That's fantastic. Um, I love having something on the go. I think that's it. I like feeling busy and often it's not like I'm writing in huge chunks, but I like the idea that there's something to show by the end of the week. I've actually not written in days because it's been Christmas and I've got everyone home. Um, but I, I think that uh, I really look forward to just getting back into that routine in, in January. And uh, it doesn't have to be a lot, but an everyday thing is great because then you're not losing the momentum. Brilliant. Barbara, thank you so much for appearing on the show. Really appreciate thank you so it. Much. Um, it's been fascinating and we'd love to have you down uh, tomorrow break uh, when the world returns to normal hopefully this year hopefully um, yeah we'd love to get you down thank you I'd absolutely love that thank you so much for having me